I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Well, hi, friends. Gosh, Easter has finally arrived, and we have a really wonderful podcast for you over John 20, verses 1 through 18, and we're going to look at this particular resurrection story that um, I think is my favorite. Go ahead. Okay. Well, and our gospel lesson this week is the gospel reading for Easter Sunday, the primary gospel reading for Easter Sunday in all three lectionary cycles. Mm-hmm. And you guys may recall, if you've been with us for a while, the, the last two years we decided to use the alternate readings. We were discussing the empty tomb narratives mm-hmm. in Mark and Luke. We're going to save Matthew's story for Matthew 28 because that comes up in Trinity Sunday this year. Mm-hmm. But we should note that while all the Gospels recount the Easter tradition with a visit to Jesus' tomb early Sunday morning, all of them report the presence of Mary Magdalene, all of them report the stone rolled away from the tomb, all of them report the appearance of an angel or angels, but that is all they have in common. Mm. And the main points of the Easter narrative are unique in each of the Gospels, and John is no exception to that. And so perhaps we should agree with Gail O'Day that the early church had a rich tradition of resurrection stories that each of the Gospel writers employed narrative freedom, narrative and theological freedom with the way they used that tradition in each of the Gospels. And so in my opinion, this makes true harmonization of this part of the Gospel story impossible. I, I, in fact, when I was still in college, I was preaching in a country church, and I tried on Easter Sunday to come up with a harmonization of the Easter story, and it was a mess. And yet, I think for, and I think it's true with the, just in the tradition as a whole, I think we try to do that with we this do. as well. I mean, it's that mentality of a modern sort of biography mm-hmm. where there's one story, and, um, you know, basically that's not the way Gospels worked. That's not the way the Gospels, Gospel origins worked. There were traditions that the Gospel writers all made used, mm-hmm. use of in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see, I mean, you know, we've seen a glimpse of this before, really in the sense of the term or the question of what does it take to bring the disciples to faith? You know, in Mark's gospel, they can't really believe until after the cross. Mm -hmm. In Matthew's gospel, they worship Jesus after the cross and the resurrection. In Mm -hmm. Luke's gospel, it takes the cross, the resurrection, and then Jesus has to come and open their minds for them to understand Mm -hmm. the scripture. In John's gospel, it takes the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. Because Jesus has to ascend to the Father to mm-hmm. fulfill the promise of eternal life. But then then comes the Spirit who enables them to yeah. understand so. the, the, the Scripture. So, it's it, you know, each of the Gospels has this their own way of dealing with the Easter narrative based on how they answer the question, what does it take to come to faith? And what's interesting about it is I think about modern-day Christians I think it kind of speaks to individual Christians too, as to how they sure. they come to faith, right? How sure. they understand um, God working in them. So it's kind of cool, actually, yep. when you yep. think about it. It is indeed. All right. So moving in, how does this begin? So John's account begins much like the others. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Uh, The difference is that John tells us that Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that says that. 
and that she went alone. Also, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Mary is one of more, more women who, mm-hmm. more than one w- woman went to the tomb. For the record, the Calvin's convinced that the other women are there. Yeah, I just have to say that, well, right? Because the Synoptic Gospels report yeah. it that way, yeah. so it has to be that way. Right? <laughs> now, we're going to see that John's Gospel focuses attention on her in the Eastern narrative as an example of true devotion to Jesus, mm-hmm. and that's something we should not miss. I, I think we also should not give credence to the tradition that grew up around her in the church, that some of you may have heard that she was a prostitute. There is nothing in the Bible that suggests that. Nor, I think, should we give credence to the more recent speculation that Mary was Jesus' wife. In John's gospel, she is a devoted disciple, an example of discipleship, and she is the first to proclaim the Easter message, I have seen the Lord. And it is awesome. And that's huge. And, and, but I, as, as Alan's telling this, I still hear all these other things about Mary. Mm-hmm. And all of them take away from her authentic yeah. devotion to Christ, yeah. which, you know, oh, well, she was his wife, the modern thing, or she's a prostitute. But this is just nope. authentic she devotion. Is, she is an example of discipleship. She is authentically devoted to Christ as a disciple, and she is the first to proclaim the Easter message, I have seen the Lord. Yeah. So, what does Mary do? So, John tells us that Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. That's John 20, verse 2. Now, in contrast to the synoptic gospels, Mary does not witness an angel rolling back the stone, nor does she enter the tomb. Rather, she sees that the stone has been rolled away and concludes that someone must have stolen Jesus' body. And so there's a note of urgency then Mm -hmm. in John's account of the Eastern narrative as Mary runs back to report the open tomb and Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved run back to see for themselves. And, you know, just as a hint of what's to come here, we should, know, we should note, and some theologians have pointed this out, some biblical scholars have pointed this out, that the empty tomb in and of itself is not sufficient for a full-blown faith. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. your mind would assume everything but a resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. And I think it's where, where we have faith run into reason. And even though these people aren't scientific, it just doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't the only make thing sense. that made sense we, to her was yeah. someone has rolled open the stone and they have to- stolen his body. Right, and and can you even imagine mm. that? Wow, yeah. that horror! Right, yeah. yeah. All right, and so um, then the second scene. What happens yep. now? So so in the second scene, Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved come to the empty tomb. Now, this is one of the few places where the disciple whom Jesus loved is specifically mentioned in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. He has named at the supper in John 13, 21 through 26, uh, as the one who asked Jesus who would betray him. Um, he is also named at the cross along with Jesus' mother Mary uh, in John 19, 26 to 27. And he is implicitly referred to by a narrative aside as the one who witnessed the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side after it was pierced by a spear in John 19, 31. Due to the connection, really, I think, with John 21, 24, where the we who serve as the editors of the final version of the gospel attribute to him the testimony on which the fourth gospel is based and they're referring back to john 21 20 which also refers to the disciple whom jesus loved now because 
of the early church tradition that identified this disciple with John, the son of Zebedee, many conservative scholars still today try to support this idea, basically by a process of elimination. They try to say, well, who is here? Who is in all of these scenes? And by mm-hmm. a process of elimination, they say, well, it's only John, the son of Zebedee that could, could be in all of these. But we should note that the tradition of the church was not unanimous, even from the earliest times, nor was it without problems. So really, the, the whole tradition hinges on this tradition that Irenaeus repeat, supposedly repeated, that he was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John, the son of Zebedee. The problem with that is that both Irenaeus and Polycarp would have had to been like five or six years old when they were a quote-unquote disciple of their mentor. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is crazy, doesn't right? Doesn't make much sense, right? yeah. Many others, and I'm one of them, prefer to leave the identity of their beloved disciple open due to the inconclusive nature of the evidence. Really, right. the, But I think we should note, as, as Gail O'Day points out, that the, that the point of the emphasis on the beloved disciple in John's gospel is not on who he is. Perhaps it was intentional that he was not identified. Right. But rather that he embodies the love and intimacy with Jesus that is the goal of discipleship in John. So Mary is presented as an example, as an example of, of, of devoted discipleship, but so is the beloved disciple. The beloved right. disciple is also presented as an example as well. Mm-hmm. John, I'm yeah. just wondering how many of our listeners just assume it's John as well. And I, I didn't look at the commentaries in my scripture, but I'm curious if they have that assumption well, too. Well, and you know, I, I, I refer to John's gospel. I mean, in a very informal way, I don't, when I, when I talk about, and I refer to John's gospel in this presentation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mean by that, that I believe that John, the son of Zebedee was the author. It's just known as, right, John, as John's the gospel, gospel of John, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. I also refer to it as the fourth gospel. Right. And, exactly. and a lot of scholars I've seen that a lot. will, will mm-hmm. use that exclusively to, to, exactly. to, um, to distance right. themselves from that tradition. Right. Know? Right. But I, I, I don't know. People know it as the Gospel of John. It's called the Gospel of John in our Bibles. I, you yeah. know, I'm not going to split hairs over that. Right. I agree. I agree. So, <clears throat> excuse me, moving ahead here is, um, you know, they, they, they run towards the tomb. Uh, so what, you know, what happens when they get there? Well, Peter and the other disciple <laughs> ran toward the tomb together, but the other disciple got there first. And when he did, he bent down to look in and, saw, and he saw the linen wrappings lying, wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Um, now, um, one of the things we should note here, is, as Ernst Hainchen points out in his commentary on John, is that um, it may be that, that um, the fourth gospel in, their East, in this Eastern narrative um, attributes the idea that Peter entered the tomb first. That re- may result from a piece of tradition. And you may recall, well... Uh, we haven't really dealt with this yet. We're going to get to this um, shortly. But in the in the story of the disciples on the road to Hemmaus, when they run back to Jerusalem and to tell the others that they had seen the Lord, the the others tell them that Jesus had appeared to Simon, which seems to bear witness to some sort of tradition within the, the early church mm-hmm. that that maybe. Jesus had appeared to Simon first. Mm-hmm. And so mm. um, so that may be reflected in the fact that Simon Peter here goes into the tomb first. We don't know, but that's an interesting idea. Now, when Simon Peter got there, he went into the tomb and saw the linen wrappings lying there with the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, mm-hmm. but rolled up by, in a place by itself in John 20. Seems like a lot seven. of detail for that. It is, mm-hmm. and that's intentional, I think. And, and 
so here we have an important addition to what Mary saw. And there's, a, there's kind of a sequence here. Mary sees the stone rolled away from the tomb. Peter and the beloved disciple get there, and they see the linen burial cloths. Mm-hmm. And not only do they see the linen burial cloths, but they see that they were in the place where Jesus was, had been lying and, and, and that the, 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 the cloth that had been on Jesus' head was rolled up in a place by itself. So, you know, we have this sort of sequence of, of, mm-hmm. of sort of revelation of, of insights that are coming. So n- now we must notice then in stark contrast with the synoptic Eastern narratives, there still is no announcement that Jesus had been raised from the dead. I think we're used to the synoptic account where basically right from the get-go, as soon as the women come to the tomb, they have some sort of announcement from the angels that Jesus is risen. But at this point, Mary, Peter, and the beloved disciple, all they have is an empty tomb. What I love is a drama here that's going on. You know, think about Mary, who would have been so distraught the fullness of emotion. Well, the here. idea that his body may have been stolen, you know, must have been just really traumatic to them. Exa- yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and as we're going to see later on, I mean, it really takes until, as I mentioned, it really takes until we get to the end of John chapter 20, where Jesus has already appeared to the disciples once, and then he appears to them again, and Thomas is able to put his fingers in the scars in his hands and his hand and the scar in his side mm-hmm. that he's able to say my lord and my god and that sort of represents the mm. conclusion of the easter narrative in right. john's gospel and so that, it's a very it's a very drawn out process it's not something that happens quickly in john's gospel right right so now um again the fact that mary peter and the beloved disciple only have the empty tomb may help us with the confusing conclusion to this scene So John tells us, then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So (laughs) that's awkward. And then the disciples returned to their homes. It's awkward. What what, what does it mean believed here? Yeah, yeah. So we're told that the other disciples saw and believed, but then we're told that as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And and so that has been a problem throughout the history Mm -hmm. of the church. Now, Augustine thought that the beloved disciples simply believed what Mary had said, Mm -hmm. that someone had taken Jesus' body. Now, so it just really doesn't make sense because it's hard to believe that anyone who had stolen his body would not have taken him as he was wrapped in yeah. his burial clause, yeah. right? So the tale of the burial clause is John's version of the early Christian effort to refute the rumor that Jesus' tomb was empty because his body was stolen. Yeah. On the other hand, then many have interpreted the statement that the beloved disciple saw and believed to mean that the beloved disciple believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Ernst Hainchen in his Hermoniah commentary on John is an example of that. But I don't think that makes sense of John's Easter narrative either. In contrast to the synoptic gospels, the announcement of Jesus' resurrection is delayed mm-hmm. and they are not able to fully understand and fully believe until the process of Jesus being lifted up is complete and the spirit is is given to them. That's the whole point of John's gospel mm-hmm. is that it takes, you know, it, it the, the process of Jesus being lifted up or his glorification must be complete. The spirit must be poured out upon them and then they can understand and believe. Right. That's what has mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps it's simplest just to read it as a statement that the beloved disciple believed in Jesus without anything more added oh, to it. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, Jesus That has, makes sense. We've, you know, John's gospel is full of these promises that Jesus has made. Right. He had, he had promised that through his being lifted up, those who would believe would have eternal life mm-hmm. in John 3, 14 and 15. So perhaps it's best simply just to see the beloved disciple as the example of one who could place his faith in Jesus without understanding fully what was going on. Well, and I think that makes sense within the context of the belief stories we've heard before in Surely. John. I, I, but I don't know that in reading that right away that it's obvious to be, I mean. I think our problem is here we really, we have a hard time reading John's Easter narrative without reading in the angelic announcement, he right. is risen. And so when we see that, that the beloved disciples saw and believed, we just assume, oh, he believed that Jesus has risen from the dead. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what's the final scene? So the final scene follows between Mary and Jesus. Now, we're not told when Mary returned to the tomb, but after the conclusion of the previous scene, we're told that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. That's John ten eleven. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, we have another step in the progression of events related to the empty tomb. First, the stone was rolled away. Then the burial claws were discovered. Here, when Mary looked into the tomb, she saw two angels in white mm-hmm. sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. So again, this is another facet of the empty tomb. Uh, We have angels, right? And Mm -hmm. so the angels appear in all the Gospels, but only in John's Gospel do we have this detail about angels at the tomb sitting at the head and feet of where Jesus had been lying. Mm -hmm. But again, in contrast to the Synoptic tradition, they do not make any announcement whatsoever. They simply ask Mary why she is weeping. And I think, you know, here, here it's, you know, Mary is still in this mindset of, you know, the body's not here, so somebody must have taken it. Right. And so she says, basically, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And, and um, you know, I just, I, again, John's Easter narrative is dragging out mm-hmm. this whole process mm-hmm. of faith until we finally reach the point in the Easter narrative that, that this particular narrative is leading to in the fourth gospel. Right. And that is the encounter between Mary and Jesus. Yes. I, I'd like to think, you know, I always think of this as an action, as a, as a play, right, in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that Mary is so despondent at this point, and she's so upset. And I, I think we don't read it with the emotion that's in mm-hmm. it. Well, they, they, they all believed Jesus was dead. Exactly. And gone. Exactly. That's what... He was dead and gone. That's what their logic told them. Now, they think... Someone has broken into his tomb and stolen his body. And even worse. Which was a desecration. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. An insult. So, um, yeah, they're, they're traumatized yeah. at this yeah. point. At this exactly. Point. But again, I think this is the point to which the Easter narrative in the fourth gospel is leading. I agree. And that is the encounter oh, between yes, Mary and Jesus. Yes, I agree. Now, it, we're going to go beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. And so the final conclusion of the Easter narrative is going to be when, when Thomas... Not John, not the beloved disciple, not Peter, Thomas, right. who says, I, can, I will not believe, right. puts his, you know, put, touches Jesus and says, okay, I believe my Lord and my God, right? Mm-hmm. So that's where it's going to finally lead to. But this is a, this is a high point, I think, up to this, I agree. Up to this point in the, in the Eastern narrative in the fourth gospel. I agree. I feel like when you get here... You take that big sigh comes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So get, go ahead and, and explain here. So John's gospel then tells us that when Mary saw Jesus, she did not recognize him. <laughs> and here perhaps we have 
the most dramatic example of misunderstanding in John's gospel. And, you know, we might also see this, as Ernst Hainchen suggests in his commentary on John, that this was due to the tradi- a tradition of the risen Christ, the risen Jesus, is not readily recognizable. Because we see that not only in the story of the road to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but we also see it in, in John 21, when Peter and some of the others are fishing, and they see a guy on the shore, and they don't know who it is. Right. And Peter says, oh, it's the Lord, and he swims out to see him. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, this, there's this tradition of Jesus not being readily recognizable. Right, 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 right. But in John's gospel, this also serves as perhaps the most dramatic example of misunderstanding. Um, now, whereas before it was a matter of misunderstanding what Jesus is saying, like you must be born from above mm-hmm. and you know, living water and things like that, here it's a matter of mistaking Jesus himself for the gardener. Now, the tomb was said to have been located in a garden earlier, and so that brings in the idea of a gardener. So again, again, you know, when Jesus asks her, you know, um, what she's doing there, why she's crying, who she's looking for, Mary still persists in her misunderstanding that someone had taken away Jesus' body. And basically, when Jesus asked her for whom she was looking, she replies, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. She, you know, even in the dialogue, she doesn't quite get it yet. No, right? no, she doesn't. And so the tension just continues again. It does. John's gospel drags this tension exactly, out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's only then, after all of this, after the continued misunderstanding on the part of Mary, as well as Peter, the beloved disciple, and presumably all the others, because presumably all the others right now are, are, are thinking, you know, Peter and John, or Peter and the beloved disciple have gone back and they have told them, you know, Jesus' body is missing. Um, they've told them their story, and they're are probably all upset about this, right? But it's only after all of this continued misunderstanding that the truth about Jesus is finally revealed by Jesus. Not by an angel, by Jesus. Exactly. And it takes place in perhaps the simplest and perhaps the most beautiful of interactions. Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. simply calls her by name, Mary. Mary, and she's able to recognize him. And Gail O'Day, uh, I think, very insightfully points to the, the the notion in John chapter 10 that Jesus as the good shepherd is the one um, that that knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice. Yeah. And so when he calls her name, she recognizes him, right? Yep, yep. And, and so then she responds by using the Aramaic term rabuni, which means more than simply teacher. I, you know, the, the, the New Testament... The mm-hmm. you know, fourth gospel simply says it means teacher. It really means more than that because we've seen that form of address on the part of those mm-hmm. who are not among the disciples. But rather, this was a term of endearment for a respected mentor and implied right. close relationship. I wish we had a good English word for it because yeah. teacher doesn't fit, but yet I think Rabuni for us is just too foreign. Mm-hmm. I wish we had something that embodied that Um I mean, better. I, I guess better. That's it's, all. It's sort of it's sort of my dear and most honored mentor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yet saying that sounds right. it's a mouthful. The mouthful. So now, of course, clearly, and this goes unstated, right? But clearly, Mary knows that Jesus is alive simply by his presence, right? There's mm-hmm. no again. There's still no announcement. Jesus is risen. It's just that Mary 
uh, encounters Jesus as alive. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and, and part of the reason for this is that in John's gospel, the process of Jesus being lifted up or glorified includes not only the cross and the resurrection, but also his ascension to the Father, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something, again, we've, we've talked about this many times, but this is crucial here. So his first instruction to her is, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to, my, to the Father. In verse 17, mm-hmm. instead, he tells her to go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, so in John's gospel, the good news of Easter is that Jesus is completing the process of being lifted up in order to draw all people to himself so that they may believe and have eternal life by ascending to the father. Right? Right. That's the good news. It's not just that Jesus died. It's not just that Jesus died and was raised to new life. It's that Jesus died and was raised to new life and is ascending Ascended. to the Father mm-hmm. and and completing this process of being lifted up so that he mm-hmm. will draw all people to himself and give them eternal life. And Furthermore, here we have a clue into something that I've really wrestled with all my life. I, I, conf- I mentioned this in a sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago. I've always wrestled with what does eternal life mean for us here and now? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we all think of eternal life as life everlasting. That part, you know, is clear enough. But what does it mean for us here and now? And in John's gospel, eternal life here and now consists of sharing the relationship of love between Jesus and the Father. We saw that uh, some time ago when we looked at John chapter 14, mm, that mm-hmm. the gift of the Spirit was going to enable uh, the, 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 the disciples to be able to know that um, Jesus is in the Father and that, that they are in Him and that they are in the Father. Basically, they are incorporated into, embraced into the relationship of love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit all share together. And so that really is, is, is the point, I think, of, of this strange statement that he's ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, mm-hmm. we might think of it as, I'm going to ascend to my Father and my God. But I think the point is that my father is also your yeah, father. Uh-huh. My God is also your God. My relationship with the Father is now your relationship yeah. with the Father, uh-huh. and you have been embraced in this in this circle of intimacy. Mm. Yeah, in this circle of love. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a helpful helpful description. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, kind of, what what do we make of, um, you know, I guess. Uh, Mary's role here. Yeah. Well, I think personally it's instructive, but unfortunately it's still too often overlooked today that Mary is the one who first takes the good news that I have seen the Lord back to the others in the fourth gospel. Yeah. She's she, she's the one. Uh, and I forget that too. I mean, I forget that too, even yeah. though I shouldn't. Um, you know, in, in the other gospels, that where where the women go back, it's the women, right? Right. Here in John's gospel, it's Mary. Yeah. And I think that's important. We we may never know why he focused on Mary so much, but you know, John has done this consistently. He has picked out people that we might not necessarily think as the most likely candidates as those who are examples of what. True mm-hmm. faith and true discipleship. Absolutely, is. yeah. And so, so here she's the one who takes the good news, and notice the good news is not Jesus is risen. 
The good news is I have seen the Lord in John's gospel. Yeah, that's good, good point. Yeah. Good point. So again, as a as a colleague of mine said in a in a in a uh, colloquium address to a seminary where I used to teach. Mary is the apostle to those who would later be recognized in the church as apostles. Mm-hmm. What does that say about her role? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How, yeah. how, how should we recognize her role? Right. And right. yet we have not done that. No, yeah. we have not. So then presumably in John's Easter narrative, we're meant to understand that she not only told the others that she had seen him alive, of course, but also she told him what he told her, right. that he was going to the Father. And again, in John's gospel, Jesus' return to the Father is crucial to his fulfillment of the promises he had made to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I guess in terms of telling this Easter story, um, with all the baggage that people have with the synoptic tradition, Do they automatically, are they automatically running back to that mentally? Or is this significant enough that we pull it out as being unique? I think we pull it out as being unique. I think it's important for us to, f- to focus on this message as well. Um, you know, again, even at this point in John's Easter narrative, you know, at the end of this, of this scene, there is still no dramatic announcement that resembles the synoptic traditions. He has risen. The closest thing we come to that is, I have seen the Lord. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's no, there's no announcement that Jesus has risen anywhere in, Easter, in the Eastern yeah. narrative in John's gospel. Not in John chapter 20, not in John chapter 21. That's never said. Um, Interesting, yeah. I have John's thought about gospel that. takes a very different strategy. John simply narrates their encounters with mm-hmm. Jesus the living Jesus, right, mm-hmm. um, as a way of, of getting at that. And so, I mean, even after Jesus appears to the gathered disciples in the, in the next episode, um, um, and when Thomas is missing and he comes back, they'll, all they're going to say what, what Mary said. We have seen, seen the, Lord, the Lord. Right? Wow. There's a certain, uh, I don't know, is it, is it a visceral response to that as opposed to kind of he's risen almost... We talk about that, but we don't experience that. But when we have seen the, he is present, he is visible, mm-hmm. that that provides, I think, a, a different image. Because arisen. It's sort of more personal. Right? More personal. Yeah. More, I, yeah. I have seen the Lord is more personal than he is risen. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's a sense experience, right? Mm-hmm. We can see as opposed to he is risen seems kind of a vague well, one concept. of the things we're going to find, you know, in the Johannine tradition, 1 John 1, 1 talks about yeah. that which we have seen, that which with our own eyes, that which we've heard, that which our hands have touched, mm-hmm. right? So that, again, that very personal interaction mm-hmm. with Jesus. This is, so the good news in 1 John is not something that is remote or just sort of uh, theoretical. Mm-hmm. It is it's, something yeah. that has, that they have personally experienced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of consistent. I yeah, think, yeah it is. In it the, is. In the Eastern narrative in John's gospel. I, again, I think this highlights the uniqueness of the Easter narrative in the fourth gospel. And to me, this seems consistent with John's Easter narrative as a whole. Even Mary's witness must be supplemented, right? Mary's witness is not sufficient um, for the group. The group has to have their own appearance. They have to have their own experience with Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And so then they, they can say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And, and, but more than that, 
Even that's not sufficient for Thomas. Thomas says, I have to see him and I have to touch him with my own hands. And, and so then finally, when that happens, Thomas is able to confess Jesus to be my Lord and my God, which I think is the conclu- sort of a, a, a first conclusion in, in mm-hmm. the Eastern narrative of John's gospel. It goes, so instead of right at the beginning in the synoptic gospels, right, the women come to the tomb, the, angels, the angel or angels announce, he is not here, he is risen. We have to go all the way through John chapter 20 to get to wow. my Lord and, and my God. And the tension of that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As you're reading, yeah. as you're processing. And I, and think, that's in, I think that well, was unpurposeful. You know, we came back to this again, and I read it again before we did the podcast, and I was really reminded of that, um, just even reading it. That I know the story, mm-hmm. but yet reading it through and walking through it, it's, it's, it's really such a beautiful story and, you know, just when you think about, I guess in a way, the story itself brings out the same sense experience because you're mm-hmm. walking with these people in this very real, real situation. Well, and, and you know, there is this sense in which I think in John's gospel, um, the Eastern narrative points to us having our own encounter with the risen Christ. Now, it's not going to be on the same level as they have, right? Mm-hmm. We, none of none of us can say, "I have seen the Lord," right? 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 Exactly. But, but but at the same time, I think it's pointing us in that direction of, you know, part of part of what has to happen for faith to come about is for us to have our own encounter with Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to switch gears here and take a look at what Calvin has to say about this passage. And um, not surprisingly, Calvin's probably not going to have quite so positive an attitude about Mary as the apostle to the apostles. No, um, and I looked at Calvin's commentaries today just to kind of get a sense of how you know he comes to that. I have to say this, Calvin. Calvin kind of. I mean, I think we think of his commentary as this being this well thought out published thing. And it really is almost a stream of consciousness sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, and so he puts some things in here that are actually kind of humorous. Well, um, if you think about it, I mean, somebody who writes commentaries on every book of the Bible, how else can you do right, it? I, mean, I don't right. know. <laughs> it's not as cleaned up as I think we'd want it to be. Yeah. But anyway, um, uh, one of the things, of course, that we've seen with Calvin all the way through is his harmonizing of the mm-hmm. synoptics. Well, he's got to harmonize John too. And um, so he does this. He tries to unify them because these, as Alan said, because this is the story of the tomb is in the other gospels, even though this one's different, but he's like, it has to match. And so he really goes out of his way to make sure Mary and the women match, that the time of day matches, and um, that Mary spoke here to Peter and and John, whereas she she speaks to, the women speak to the disciples as a whole, and he harmonizes the whole thing. Well, and I think about just the detail that in the Synoptic Gospels, it's some version of dawn or daylight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In John, it's dark. Right. And so when people try to harmonize those things, they have to go through such mental gymnastics to make it work. It's like, really? You're really going to stretch it that far? Exactly. I can find (laughs) what I can find what actually says on that. And it's it's it is pretty humorous. Um, The discrepancies to the time may be easily solved, he says. (laughs) 
when, <laughs> when John says that they came before daybreak, we must understand that they had set out on their journey during the darkness oh. of night, that before they came to the sepulcher, the day had dawned. No. And that in the evening after sunset, when the Sabbath has ended. The, oh. Yeah. Like I said, you have to really stretch it. <laughs> so, exactly. Mm. So, and of course, Calvin assumes the other disciple is John. Yeah, of course. And, and that's just, it, it's like it's not even a question. I don't know that it was really a question, you know. Yeah, I, 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 you know, but Calvin at times has been astute enough to say, hey, this isn't in the gospel. This isn't told. So we, I'm not going to buy that. So I find that interesting that sometimes he'll, he'll kind of make that leap and sometimes he doesn't. Well, you're looking at over a thousand years of church tradition. Here. Right, <laughs> right. And, and maybe that there was agreement with the church fathers that mm-hmm. this, he just assumes as well um so i find this interesting this the i wanted to a little bit about the whole thing with mary magdalene um and when the other gospels have three women and he solves this one by noting that john obviously excludes the other two names as they were included um as having because they had the greatest reputation amongst the disciples then Calvin believes that John just left out the other two, quoting verse two, we. Do not no. know where they have left yeah. him. Yeah, so that plural there. Yeah, and I, well, the best thing I saw there was just, you know, she was speaking really on behalf of all of Of the, everybody. All of them, <laughs> yeah. right? We, yeah. 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 Um, the, fair, the fact that Mary and the other women are women, quote, <laughs> he does, does not escape Calvin. Yeah. And he does make some comments regarding the idea that Christ appeared to the weaker sex. It's, it's pretty obnoxious. He actually kind of condemns it as, and wishing that Christ would have come to a man first, but then notes that we must accept this witness and that we must honor it. <laughs> Sounds like reluct- <laughs> very reluctantly. Yeah. Yeah. He's really off. I'm sorry. He's really awful in this part. Um, later, <laughs> Later, he says that actually appearing to women um, who did not receive the training like the apostles did, did is a way to fill the apostles with shame. So this was shaming. It was shaming. Was, Jesus was shaming the others. Yeah, which is, this doesn't even sound like a but lot now, of the Calvin but I read. Now, wait a minute. In, according to Luke, Mary and a lot of the other women who were, who were involved in this Eastern narrative story were were supporting the disciples, right? So maybe they weren't sitting in the inner circle while Jesus was teaching, but do you think maybe they heard what he had yeah, to say? Yeah, no, he doesn't go there at all. <laughs> kind of like, yeah. you know, they're and, invisible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. non-entities. So I I think it's interesting that he can't take John's gospel on its own, mm. um, and that he insists that the other women are present with Mary. So, um, and and. Again, that they're all, that this is kind of a, a shaming or that they're not really authentically called by Jesus. It's, it's well, kind it's, of, it sounds to me, like, again, like Mary being the apostle to the other oh, apostles was yeah, not, too far. That's that was way crossing too far. the line for Calvin. But I think it's important to note that there were, you know, some of the Anabaptist groups mm. were buying into this and, and, and were promoting women into roles of preaching, which they were just terrified of it. All I could say is he was a man of his time. Yeah. And um, you read hand in hand with um, um, their, some of the remarkable things that they say uh, right alongside just some of the hor- most horrible assumptions about yeah. women possible. And that is true to the day of, um, with all of these people. There's definitely, and I saw this all the way through, but you see this line between this kind of authentic um, 
educational pieces that put mm. out that are really beautiful and oh we need to educate women because they're central to the family and the family is the cornerstone of the church and they need to be able to educate the children well, and then all you the have way other to passages the other side like the one in the commentary right right so like this in the commentary so this so I can, he, he quotes, quote, I, I conclude, therefore, that Mary was sent to the disciples in general. And I considered that this was done by way of reproach because they had been so tardy and sluggish to believe. And, in, and indeed, they deserve not only to have women for their teachers, but even oxen, oxen and asses, since the Son of God had been so long and laboriously employed in teaching, and yet they had made so little or hardly any progress. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so you see that kind of just part of the mind. And so you do see all this polemical stuff mm-hmm. that's very much against women and very afraid of women. And, and, and there any kind it's of just role. almost on the side and it's just assumed. Yeah. And, and he, he says this, which is such a, a horrible insult. Oh, yeah. And yet it's it's right alongside of we need to educate. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think you just have to put it into the context of that's just the attitude of the age. It's, it's like the, it's like the air is so filled with it that they can't step outside of it to realize really what they're saying. Sure. That's how I sure. interpret yeah, it. No, I get that. Yeah. Get that. Yeah. yeah. So, well, another one of these is when it comes to Mary speaking only to Peter and John and here as, a, as opposed to the synoptics, Calvin reconciles this by claiming that John left out the rest of the apostles. In Calvin's opinion, the other nine were, quote, restrained by fear and would be too recognizable if they went together. (laughs) Okay. But he really was desperate to harmonize this. This was great on his mind. I think it suggests something about the time, is that, you know, this was an age where biography was becoming central to people's identity and and to have Jesus have a recognizable and right obvious biography was was important yeah um so yeah he's, it, he's trying to forge that out of the gospel which he really is they're not meant to which do is that. unfortunate yeah. but but I think important for us because this still impacts us today mm-hmm. still it impacts us all of us okay so Beyond this, Calvin makes a big deal about the energy in which Peter and John ran to the tomb. Um, So, and I loved this part, actually. He reminds us that despite the disciples turning away at the crucifixion, Peter and John obviously had great zeal. Mm. Calvin says, quote, some seed of faith therefore remained in their hearts. Mm. So, He's kind of hard on the apostles, but yet he recognizes this. And, of course, he connects this to the idea of the elect. And there is some interesting doctrine that he puts forth in this analysis. Why would disciples who had rejected Christ now come to him? (laughs) For Calvin, it only explained that this is faith implanted in them by God, a seed of Mm. faith. Mm. So the disciples are, as he says, ignorant of the resurrection, because, right, we don't know yet about the right. resurrection right. for sure, right? And yet God nourishes them as if in the womb. Mm. Um, and the death of Christ required of them to be reformed, as he quotes in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ wow. is formed in you. Yeah. Um, I, as you mentioned before, you know, I love the way John's gospel has this, 
faith as a process. Mm -hmm. You know, as we saw with right. the Samaritan woman, as we're seeing in this Easter narrative, right. you know, that it's not some just instantaneous uh, announcement right. and all of a sudden people are, are, are come to believe. You know, it takes, a, it's a process that they have to go through. I think Calvin would agree with that because this is a seed that has yeah. not bloomed. Yeah. But yet that seed has to be there. Now, it is an interesting set of issues, isn't it? Because sure. is there free will in this at all? Right. You and know? so for me, the, the process is a real process. So a little different move. Calvin, the, the linen cloths that are on the ground are important in, in Calvin too. And, and we already talked about this, but I thought this was interesting observation um, to prove that Christ's body was not moved. No one claims Calvin would remove these <laughs> To, uh, right. would remove these to move the body to a different place. And he says, quote, this would not have been done by friends, nor even by an enemy. Oh, of course not. <laughs> you know, no one's going to do that. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, no one's going to do that. So then in the next part, he takes a chance to attack Roman Catholic practice. And so one of the most important relics of the Roman Catholic Church was the piece of linen cloth on Christ's body. And, you know, we know this is the Shroud of Turin today, um, and the Shroud of Turin actually, and we went and looked it up, had been floating around since the 14th century. So this idea that the Shroud of Turin is out there, this, this, mm. the, the, the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in with the idea that there's this image. And of course, the, the Shroud itself is, is thought as being not uh, real. But this idea that this was real and a really significant relic was huge so it, in a the, tradition. The, church, the Roman Catholic Church was aware of the existence of the Shroud of Turin even then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, anyone that would have had that in the Roman Catholic tradition would have it would have been a major pilgrimage course, site because it would course. have been of great. And of course, these types of relics were important were important for um, money making and for for concepts of faith. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, 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 it seems like their faith hinged on being able to attach it, their faith to something tangible like yep, that. Yep. And if you actually saw or touched one of these things, they could bring about a miracle. Mm -hmm. And so another one, apparently the cloth on Jesus's head was also a great relic. However, there were, according to Calvin, five or six people that claimed to have it, mm. so or a piece of it. So, and if you if you've ever been, I mean, this is actually really interesting. If you're a Protestant, aren't familiar with this tradition, many many um, 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 monasteries, nunneries, yeah. um, Catholic churches have relics, yep. and you'll see these things. They claim to be um, something from a saint, or of course. Jesus is even the best of the best. Right. And they'll have these beautifully crafted, you know, reliquaries that these things are in and they claim to have some kind of spiritual significance. And oh. so as Calvin said, it should mean it, it when when these are put put aside, it, it shouldn't be about those things, but rather that Christ had laid aside these tokens of death and now he was clothed in immortality. That makes them irrelevant, basically. It, it <laughs> yeah. makes them irrelevant, yeah. and, and that's really, and, and that's important. It's not these things that bring you to faith. And so he was attacking Roman Catholic practice there. Yeah. And then he takes us to verses eight through 10, where the other disciple, John, as he labels him, believes. And I think what is important here is that Calvin understands that they did not really know what Jesus meant by resurrection at this point. And while they saw the spectacle of the empty tomb, that they began to believe. And Alan talked about this. Um, what does that belief really mean? Um, 
But for um, Calvin, it pulls up the lessons of Christ. He he uses this as an opportunity to emphasize the importance of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Look, you can believe in what the Scripture has told you about Christ. So kind of what the same space we were in. Um, The disciples did not believe the Scriptures, as he said. And we can understand this as instruction to us that we are, quote, ignorant of what we ought to know about Christ because we have not profited as we have to have done by the scriptures, which clearly reveal the excellence of Christ. Um, So now we might take this to mean that we are ignorant of the New Testament, but Calvin more so is referencing the entirety of scripture and the promise of Christ in Hebrew scriptures. And so he he references Psalm 110 um, as well as Isaiah 53, 8. So... Moving on, I just kind of moved through the 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 um, um, commentary. Mary encounters with angels. I love this. This is so random, <laughs> but um, it, it, again, as I said, that's why it seems almost freeform. Calvin believes that Mary does not actually know whether they were angels or not when she right. saw them. Right. It is not clear from the scriptures. Right. But then he asks this question of whether or not the angels had real bodies or the appearance of bodies. <laughs> And he said, well, it's actually useless to ask. And yet he brings it up. And I'm like, but I really think he's dealing with issues of medieval theology Surely. where this was actually a really big deal. Do angels have mass? And yeah. and it was discussed a lot trying to figure yeah. out what angels were. I mean, can they be purely spirit? If we can see them, can they be purely spirit? Or do they have to have mass? And so they're asking some interesting questions. And this I think was a question of medieval theology. theology. We're seeing sort of the, the heritage of the church tradition. Exactly. But it seems so random here. (laughs) Calvin sides on the idea that they had human shape and were disguised from everyday folks. Apparently, though, the place of the angels um, was part of the Augustinian allegory that being at the head and the feet signified the spread of the gospel from east to west. Calvin does not buy this, but does claim that they are part of the beginning of Jesus' of God's kingdom and that the majesty of Christ takes away the mm. disgrace of the cross. Okay. <laughs> a little far as well, but yeah. uh, but he's moving from Augustine. So I mm. think that's healthy. He's still trying to explain why are they present, right? Yeah, right. So in assessing why Mary does not recognize Jesus, Calvin claims that it is not because Jesus looked differently, which some people argued apparently, but because Mary could not see him. Um, it was a mistake of the human mind mm. or as in maybe more uh, 16th century terms, bewitched by the world and by Satan, you know? So we've got to bring in something like that. Well, I mean, again, it makes me wonder, is this, is this sort of his sort of anti-feminine kind of bias? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She is unable at this point to recognize Jesus until Christ called to her. While Calvin describes what is happening to Mary, he claims that this is an image for us to admit to ourselves that we can envision our calling when we recognize Christ Mm -hmm. is that special voice. Mm -hmm. And he quotes Galatians four, nine, after you have come to, after you have come to know God or rather to be known by him. And like Mary, we can respond through the spirit and recognition. And then Calvin actually makes a big deal out of about Jesus telling Mary not to touch him. It rings of an age that the women tended to be in excess of touching his feet and that would cause them to want him to remain in the world. But he added that quote, I am not yet ascended to my father in order to explain it is here that Jesus can govern 
and that we must be able to lift our minds upwards away from earthly matters. So, so again, it's the worldly nature of women to touch, mm-hmm. and that would hinder Jesus yes. from ascending to the Father. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because you can, you can almost clearly see the times when Calvin is interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Yep. And you can clearly see when Calvin is interpreting Scripture through the lens of his own time. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah. So these people that, that you know, want to come to the world and, and, and really understand Calvin to try to understand a modern day church, it's a big error because yeah. you, you have to understand him through his yep. lens of being a 16th century, a, yep. a, a late medieval. I mean, sometimes he's early modern, sometimes he's late medieval. Yep. We're yep. in that picture and, and definitely we see it here. Yeah. So finally, he argues that Jesus sent Mary to the disciples in part because they were so slow in believing. He is really interpreting this in the way that, that, that in having a woman come to them, that they are shamed because they are so clueless. However, Jesus does claim that it is the women who are given, quote, the commission, which is the foundation of our salvation. He gives that credit. It must have, it must have hurt him to say that, it sounds like. <laughs> Oh, I think so. So he finds the women to be not really worthy of this, mm. but has to accept it. <laughs> and it's strange, but it definitely shows the idea that he is confounded that the women are trusted with being the first witnesses to the mm. resurrection. And furthermore, he says that this is both, ex- quote, extraordinary and accidental, <laughs> and, that we, and that we should, accidental, I'm just insulted, mm. and that we should in no way interpret this as a reason to allow women to baptize. Oh, bah, <laughs> bad Calvin. <laughs> and of course, you know, he's undoubtedly attacking Anabaptists there. And, right. And right. some of those traditions that allow women into the ministry already. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. Thanks, thanks Christy. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to reflect on some takeaways from our discussion today. So, Christy, lead us off here. Sure. You know, I mentioned at the beginning I really love this story, this Easter story. I think um, I think it's where Jesus says, Mary, mm-hmm. and she just, I, I can feel her just all emotion with and 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 just responding rabuna you know as i mentioned i wanted to have a better english word for this because it's 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 this turnaround it, it, i mean i don't think she could say anything beyond that because she's just she's just oh and and then i have seen the lord that's what she finally gets i have seen the lord it's so and i think what i love is I mean, I love the story building up to it. I love the the emotion building up to it. If you've had an experience like this, you, you can you can place yourself in her world, um, and then this it's not as, as Alan said. It's not he is risen. It's I have seen the Lord. It yep. doesn't need any other explanation. Yep. It doesn't need any other clarity. It doesn't need any other theology. It's just it's so real. It's so dramatic. Yep. It's so pure. It's personal. Yeah. It's so personal. And so this is, I, I guess that's what I wanted to start with today is how, how do we help people see? How do we, how do we, how do we open their eyes? Mm-hmm. You know, as, as pastors, we tell the story, we want them to have the same, 
walk through her and have the experience that she has in this. Sure. And, you know, I, I think a part of the answer to that is being faithful to the scripture as it is, letting the story speak for mm-hmm. itself. Um, not reading in all these assumptions that we bring to the mm-hmm. scripture. Because to me, I've always had the conviction that it's the power of the word itself. Right. And through through the spirit, you know, through the, that, that brings this encounter with Christ. Well, you know, one option for this, and this is something, you know, I'm an associate pastor. My senior pastor has been experimenting with, which is not that typical in the Presbyterian church, but just to walk through the scripture. I mean, does... Does the scripture speak enough for itself that that's effective? And then, I mean, he's an analyzing in that pattern. And he, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, I think I think going verse by verse can be helpful in certain circumstances, and I do some of that myself, especially mm-hmm. with narrative mm-hmm. uh, passages. But I always, in, I, I, I'm as I'm as I'm framing the, the my my as I'm as I'm recounting the narrative, I, I frame it with interpretive comments. So I think yeah, that's think, what he's doing. I think that's you what he's have doing. To give the interpretation along mm-hmm. with telling the story, mm-hmm. and, and and so I think that's crucial. Um, I've seen I've seen going verse by verse done really badly, where it just becomes sort of a disjointed set of observations about this word and that word. And I would say he's good. doing more paragraph by paragraph, yeah. and I think it's pretty successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it has been for these wonderful stories that mm-hmm. that do speak. Well, and yet at the same time, I wonder, do we, is there some kind of slap in the face that you need that they, that, I well, mean, how do you move it to be? What I do also with these, with these is I, I the way I tend to preach them is I tend to pick up a, a main idea that I want to focus on from the narrative. And so, um, you know, like last week with the raising of Lazarus, uh, my point was, um, um, what difference does having this promise of life for us make not only in our mm-hmm. ability to face death, but also in our whole outlook on life? Mm-hmm. And and so I, I, I did go through the story and I did, you know, comment somewhat on that. But then I came back and focused on that point. Mm-hmm. I'm the resurrection of the life. Right. And, and just what does that mean for us to be able to live with that promise of life? Right. Right. To be right. able to confront death with that promise of life. And so I, I think the same thing applies here, you know, in that, you know, it's, you know, the story is beautiful and the story is, is an amazing re- retelling of this, this encounter. But, you know, uh, the, 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 the bottom line comes down to, you know, just being able to encounter Christ for yourself and, and, and to be able to say, you know, I believe. Right. Right. No, I agree. And, uh, no, I, I, I think I, I think you're right. That's a, that uh, the having some kind of major point that you're trying to mm-hmm. push through that is is important. Well, and, uh, and for me, as I said before in, in my segment, you know, the thing that I see, the thing that sticks out to me in this passage is what does it take to bring a person to belief? Right. You know, is is seeing Jesus on the cross enough? Right. 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 Well, that's Mark's perspective. You have you cannot right. understand well, Jesus as the Son of God until. You go through the cross, and, and that the, would be kind cross. of a Roman Catholic take, to some extent. Could be. I, I think for him, it's more of you cannot adequately understand that Jesus is the Messiah or the Son of God without understanding that he must die. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And so, so that's Mark's point. Matthew 
has the disciples worshiping Jesus just at the at the you know just with the cross and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection is enough for them right. to respond in faith. Right, right, right. Luke, you know, they 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 have the cross, they have the announcement of the resurrection, they have Jesus appearing to them, but then Jesus has to open their minds so that they can understand the right. scriptures to be right. able to fully understand and believe. And then in John, you have this thing where, you know, well, okay, Jesus has to complete the whole process of mm-hmm. being lifted up or being glorified. He has to be lifted up on the cross. He has to be lifted right. up in the right. resurrection. He has to be lifted up back to the presence of the Father in order mm-hmm. to complete the work of being able to grant eternal life and being able to right. uh, bestow upon them, basically opening up the embrace of love that the Father, Son, right. and Spirit shares to them. That's 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 the gift of eternal life, right? Right, right. And, and, think- and, that, and that happens also not only as Jesus completes his work of being lifted up and glorified, but it also happens as a result of the Spirit. So, right. so for me, the question is, what does it take to right. come to faith? Well, and that's interesting. Yeah, and I think that's good. I think, as I'm thinking about John, you know, and I'm thinking about the world of John, and, and, and John's whole need to, you know, he puts this full context in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the beginning of the Word, the Word is God, mm-hmm. the Word was God. This whole, it's, it's like... It starts with the incarnation. It starts with the, yeah, exactly. And and so this got this... um. I don't, it's got this fullness where it, it's 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 sinking together, mm-hmm. if you will, philosophy and Jesus, and so it it, it matches it all together. It, it it fills perhaps, and I I don't know. I suppose I suppose by this time it's it's later gospel mm-hmm. that that's a necessary next step. I would say I would say it fills out the theology of salvation and 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 what Jesus has done for our salvation. So you know, it begins with the incarnation. Right. It begins with the fact that he was exactly you know, was God before exactly. in, in, you know, Yeah, and he really emphasizes that, right? But but then it's the incarnation that enables him to give life to people. Right. But at the same time, he has to complete the process of being lifted up. Right. That, right? That's what I mean. It has to fit. It has to go it has back. To go come full circle. Full circle. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. was a much better way of saying it than I did. But no, that no, was no, what no. I was it's... after. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And um, I, I think, um, I think some people, I think when John's looking at people, needed that. They mm-hmm. needed that. Something about that. Well, so, I think you see that in real life. I mean, there's some people who. I mean, it's like they just hear and boom. Yep. I mean, that's kind of was my comment on the Mark one. I just need to see Jesus die. And for some people. Just you know, seeing that's, Jesus on the cross. That's that's all it takes. You know, when I worked in that, that hospital, it was Roman Catholic, and they have the crucifixing in there, and, and, and they're just seeing Jesus suffered for them. That's all they need. That's yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and that's Jesus where it died stops. for you. Exactly. That's Boom. enough. That's yep. all they need. Um, other people, other for other people, it takes more, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, and here's here's where I think maybe we can kind of transition into, you know, um, how do we help people believe when they have ideological blinders that just keep them from believing, right? Because yeah. because um, you know, even Calvin has these ideological blinders that he can't even begin to think of Mary as the apostle to the no, apostles. That doesn't even compute to him. That can't crosses be that way in his world. He and, just can't do it. And sadly, in 2023, there are still people who are just as blind to that and can't see that. And they come to a passage like this, 
and they cannot see Mary as the apostle of the apostles. Right. They, they, they must see it as something extraordinary or accidental, mm-hmm. but certainly not an example for us to follow. I, I, uh, absolutely. It, absolutely. And there's this idea, oh, this happened once. This is not typical. That's not how it's supposed to be. She would have been, you know... Jesus only trained male disciples. This, the theory is Alan has already pointed out. What do you think these women are doing? Right. <laughs> Not paying attention. Right. But for some reason, those are always exceptions yes. instead of yeah. um, instead of really the the. Uh, I, geez, think about this is huge. Well, and but Mary's the one. Mary's yeah. the one. Mary's the one that sees. Yeah. And it wasn't even this guy. Uh, he claims to be Jesus. You better come see some. I saw the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Yep. I have seen Mm. the Lord. There was no question. She knew who he was. Yeah. 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 I've seen the Lord. And he told her, he commissioned her to be the apostle to the ones that were recognized as the apostles. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, and, you know, I, you know, so I, I've had a pilgrimage of faith myself. You know, I, I worked in the Baptist world for a long time, and, and some of the things that I now embrace and believe, you know, were, were taboo when I was in those circles. And, you know, as I've said before, I, I think the Bible, if we read the Bible rightly, it's going to lead us where we need to go. And that's what happened in my case, was well, that the Bible led me to this place where I started to believe things that it was like, wow, this isn't okay in my current context. And there's this kind of fear, I think, that keeps people from going there because it's like, hey, wait, if you cross this line, you're going to sail off the world or beyond here, there are monsters. So, you not you know, beware. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, so it's. I think this is one of the reasons why people can read a passage like this and they just can't see what's obvious is because they're they're in a mindset they're in right. the, they're in a whole way of looking at things that becomes a blinder an ideological blinder and, right and they can't see past they it. can't they can't and you know even Calvin says that we need to look at scripture even and he still <laughs> even. He, even Calvin, who actually yeah. does some remarkable work, still yes. can't see his, his own blinders. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Can't see his own blinders. And yeah. I I think, you know, it's a reminder to myself, first of all, I think to always come at scripture first through that prayer with having the Holy Spirit open it. And then always to be aware of what it is. Obviously, as someone whose Greek is not great, I'm I have a blinder of reading the English text first, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's always a blinder. Um, even if I can read the Greek, I'm still impacted by it. I'm also impacted by the way it was taught to me. You mm-hmm. know, I'm probably impacted some some to some extent of um, even though I I try not to use gendered language for God, seeing yeah. God as male because that's what I was formed in. Um, so. Um, I honestly, well, I've always accepted Mary in this role. And I didn't really think about it. I've not really thought about her as an apostle to the apostles, mm-hmm. you know, and yet that's a huge support for women in ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, I just thought it was really cool that he came a woman first. But when you really place it into this next level, oh, in all yeah. of the gospels, he comes, the, the yeah, well, all comes of them, yeah, exactly. All of them, <laughs> you know, that's one of the, that's one of the, the fundamental things that I've always thought about women and in that role, but 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 to, to to label her as an apostle, that's something that not everyone's willing to do, and yeah. and and clearly, you know, it's 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 really until we look at it and we're willing to say, well, why her? You know, asking you have to ask different questions sometimes, and sometimes it takes 
someone younger or someone from a different culture or I think again I think in John's gospel the, the the point of this is to show that she, she is a model of, of the, the devotion yes. that is required for discipleship but you have to get rid of the assumptions she's mm-hmm. a prostitute how many mm-hmm. people do you still hear mm-hmm. say that I hear yeah. it all the time yeah. this it's as Alan pointed out this is not in scripture this is in you know extra church practice that it becomes accepted that she's a no No, stop it people she she is presented as the the uh the ideal of of a devoted disciple yeah yeah Yeah. and um you know um as is the beloved disciple Mm -hmm. presented as the one who comes to faith right without even understanding right he still comes to still comes to faith and for me you know i i want to go back to Kind of what Calvin said. I'm not really a fan of that whole seed of faith idea because that's, that's yeah. a little bit too deterministic for me. Yeah. But what I want to say, I do agree, is that faith is always the work of God. Yeah. And and yeah. so, you know, I will, I'm, I'll entrust anyone into the hands of the Spirit who, who is the one, you know, who has to come to open our minds and hearts right. to be able to believe, well, according and, to John's gospel. And look at John and all these unexpected characters yeah. that, that believe and, yeah. and share. And then of the most significant uh, recognition is this very unexpected person. Yeah, Mary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.